From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. At-home COVID tests aren't perfect, but they remain an important tool, says infectious disease data doyen Daniel Laramore of CU Boulder. You know, you lock your car doors, not because you're 100% sure that doing so is going to prevent somebody from breaking into your car, but it sure is a good idea to decrease the chances that somebody gets in. Today, at-home testing. How often, how effective, how long? Then, quite a few state lawmakers in Colorado are running for Congress. It has big implications for what happens at the state capitol this year. And it's also going to show us something about politics in 2022. CPR public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland offer analysis in our politics podcast, Purplish. Hi, my name is Laura. I decided to become an Evergreen member because I listen to CPR every day and I count on CPR for news. So it was time and I feel great. You get to hear it all thanks to CPR's community of support. Join that community with your first gift now. Evergreen memberships start at $5 a month. That sustaining donation builds a strong foundation of funding for Colorado Public Radio. Start your membership now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The state has distributed more than 2 million COVID test kits. The feds are sending them as well. But how reliable are they in the face of Omicron? And how important is testing at this stage of the pandemic? For answers, we've reached a computer scientist at CU Boulder. He harnesses the power of data and modeling to understand infectious diseases. Daniel Laramore is also associated with the Harvard School of Public Health. Dan, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Two million test kits in a state of six million people. That seems sort of low, or am I looking at this the wrong way? Well, I think that any test kits that we can get into people's hands so that they can use them when they feel sick or before an important contact with somebody who may be more vulnerable um, is a good test to have. So um, while 2 million doesn't cover everybody in the state with a test, um, you know, every single test here counts. Okay. And I presume you'd like to see more in people's homes. I would. You know, I think a lot of people might be looking at some tests that they may have on the shelf and seeing these Omicron numbers come down, not only across the country, but in Colorado as well, Mm -hmm. and wondering, you know, should I pitch this thing? Um, I would encourage everybody to hold onto those tests. Um, We have not seen the last of COVID, I think, both between new variants that may emerge, as well as what we may come to expect as seasonal fluctuation in COVID case counts. You were an early proponent of at-home testing. In November 2020, I think it was, you concluded that testing half the population weekly with inexpensive rapid kits would go a long way to vanquishing the virus and lead to what you called personalized stay-at-home orders instead of widespread shutdowns of restaurants and stores and schools. Things didn't quite turn out that way. Has your thinking changed when it comes to the role of at-home testing in any way? My thinking has has changed and it hasn't changed. I mean, let, let's go back to 2020 when we were dealing with what scientists call the wild type of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, we were dealing with a different virus back then. And the thinking at the time was that tests needed to be as sensitive as possible. Like we have to find this virus wherever it lurks. 
And this is all about diagnosis. Why are people sick? Um, do they have COVID or do they have something else? Um, but if you zoomed out in 2020 and asked, how are we gonna stop this virus? Um, you really need information that you can act on at the same speed that the virus spreads. And so that led us to start thinking about what would be the effect of handing everybody in the nation a rapid test that would give them less sensitive but nearly immediate results so that they could personally know, am I infected and don't know it? Or are my sniffles because of COVID? Um, that would allow folks to stay home when they need to stay home, but not have to stay home if they didn't have to. In our modeling, what we really found was that uh, there was a good argument to be made for a mitigation plan, like layers in a filter, repeated testing that could help people isolate and reduce the spread layer by layer, test by test, even if that test is imperfect, um, could really uh, break the back of a lot of those transmission chains um, and allow us to just mitigate the virus through testing alone. However, that was 2020. Now we're dealing not with that wild type virus, but instead with um, the alpha variant followed by the delta variant, followed by now this Omicron variant. And it's simply more transmissible. Mm -hmm. So I would liken this as uh, a car rolling downhill and you hit the brakes and that's like the testing and you can slow down the car and slow down the car and potentially even stop it. But if I give you those same brakes, that same testing strategy, and I put that on a truck and the truck is moving downhill, that same intervention isn't going to work as well on the truck as it is on the car. And so that's how I think about testing now. It can help slow things down, but the Omicron virus is just different from the wild type virus. And we need a, a suite of different interventions if we really want to, to drive these case counts into the ground. And so you do indeed see a role for continued testing as, as we move perhaps from a pandemic to an endemic phase. Say just a few words, Dan, about how effective the at-home antigen tests are at detecting Omicron. Well, my colleague here, uh, virologist Sarah Sawyer at, at CU, uh, likens this to um, uh, a, a classifier that's trying to, to identify oranges. She says the old tests were designed for the older virus, and they're good at identifying navel oranges. Hmm. And now this new variant comes along and it's a mandarin orange. So does it work as well? The answer is yes, for the most part, it does work very well. It's slightly different, um, but for the most part, these at-home tests work, work just as well. Something that was designed on one kind of orange works just as well uh, for the most part as another kind of orange. Are, are they now, developing tests now that will detect the Omicron orange to continue the metaphor? No, that's not the kind of work that, that we do um, in my group. Um, but I'm sure that somewhere um, folks are working on Omicron-specific tests, just like we know that the folks are working on those Omicron-specific uh, vaccines. Mm -hmm. So you think not only is testing continuing to be important, but even if they are tests developed at a different time for a different version of the virus, and they are less effective, not ineffective, but less effective, you still think that they should play a role? Yeah, I, I think definitely that's the case. I mean, you know, one of the key things about testing is that we have different tests for different purposes. So one version of testing, which people are probably familiar with, is called PCR testing. And I think about this really as a test for information. It's a diagnosis. It answers a question. So it's, it's the kind of test that your doctor is really interested in. Because if you come in and you are sick 
your doctor wants to know, uh, does my patient have COVID? And so she's going to call for a PCR test. You'll get that nasal swab. And that's the most sensitive test that you can get right. to try and answer that question. On the other hand, rapid tests are more about screening or mitigation. It's less about asking a question and more about testing as a solution or an answer. Your goal is to, to break chains by preventing spread. So I think that, that you can really um, think about the rapid tests that you have as potentially being useful for both. If you are sick right now and you wanna know whether or not you have COVID, a rapid test is a great way to determine within 15 minutes or so whether or not you have COVID. On the other hand, if you're also at home and you're thinking about planning an outing, maybe to visit a loved one who is um, older, like when we visit my, my wife's grandfather who's turning 99 this month, um, we're gonna test ahead of time because we know that um, even if we are infected asymptomatically, the consequences if we infect somebody of that age um, are, are potentially uh, life-threatening. So I see those two uses, information, am I sick right now, and mitigation, could I possibly transmit to somebody at the event that I'm heading to? Those rapid tests are going to be useful for both. Dan, is it possible to spread the virus before it becomes detectable? It is. And that's true of both the PCR tests as well as the rapid tests, although more so for the rapid tests, less so for the PCR tests. Okay, something to keep in mind uh, and to reinforce what we've heard earlier in this conversation, despite uh, some of the shortcomings of testing, you think at this point in the pandemic, it's an important tool uh, in slowing the spread, uh, especially if there are future variants. A number of cities, including Denver, have lifted their mask mandates. Uh, Governor Polis uh, some time ago told us he believes the medical emergency is in essence over and that unvaccinated folks are risking their own lives now. The Washington Post reported this week that more and more states are moving in this same direction. What comes to mind when you hear that sentiment around masks? I think the sentiment around masks really raises anew questions about trade-offs. You know, Omicron is a slightly milder variant, um, and it has really arrived at a time when practically anyone who wants a vaccine can get one, right? That's 64% of the entire nation, uh, around 69% in Colorado. And so it, it really raises questions about um, what are the trade-offs of continued uh, mitigation measures, um, even when we have these other tools that, that help us make the virus less severe. Unfortunately, I think that the story that you'd get from somebody who is remaining on the front lines, a physician or a nurse, somebody working in an ICU or an emergency department, is really that the pandemic is far from over and we continue to see um, increases um, or plateaus in the number of, of daily deaths. So I, I think the mask question is, is really complicated um, and, and it really just raises old questions about trade-offs um, freshly. You mentioned vaccines. I just looked up the state's booster data. It looks like uh, currently those ages 12 and up, we're at about 51% that have received the booster. How does that play into this picture, do you think, around testing? Well, you know, I, I think that, that one of the interesting things about the whole pandemic is how our thinking on it has shifted over time. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people... Um, during uh, the, the early part of the pandemic, we're really focused on, okay, we're gonna follow the science, follow the science. And one of the things that comes along with that is that the science changes. 
Um, and even things that, that used to be sort of fixed numbers, like how well does a vaccine work um, that we could do a study for in the past, for instance, like how well does a measles vaccine work? That's a number that we can establish. That virus isn't changing. And so you do one study and you're done with it and you kind of know what that number is. Interesting. With SARS-CoV-2, the ground is shifting under our feet. Right? When we follow the science, that means that not only is our understanding going to change, but we're going to have to kind of um, uh, discard some older thinking to move toward newer thinking as that science changes. Um, so for instance, one thing we talked about with testing before was this idea of a strategy of repeated testing of most of the folks in a population to mitigate spread. Right? And that's the kind of system that, that the folks here at CU Boulder's BioFrontiers Institute developed for CU Boulder's campus. We were testing everybody weekly. Those repeated testing strategies make a lot of sense for um, the virus before Delta, but less so after. And so even if folks are thinking, I'm gonna follow the science, and that means repeated, repeated testing on a regular basis, that science changes. I think there are a lot of examples of this. And, and another example, uh, maybe some of these vaccinate or test policies. A, a policy of, of test or vaccinate really makes a lot of sense if the vaccines prevent infection and transmission. But if they're less effective at preventing infection and transmission, while they nevertheless hold up really well against severe disease, then a vaccinate or test policy is really using older science to think about a trade-off where the newer variants um, and waning immunity against infection and transmission sort of no longer present that same trade-off. Mm. And so this is partly why you think testing needs to continue. That's right. Uh -huh. I mean, my, you know, my, my wife and I, as I mentioned before, we're, we're both vaccinated, uh, we're both boosted. Um, and when we visit her grandfather, who's also vaccinated and boosted, just to be sure we take a rapid test ahead of time, again, because the, the potential risk of transmitting the virus to him is, is sufficiently large that we just don't want to take that risk. Those tests are going to be valuable um, on the shelf today um, as they will be in the future. Dan, before we go, what gives you hope in your work right now? Oh, gosh. I mean, there, there are so many things. I'll just say that SARS-CoV-2 is, is one of these viruses that we have learned more about than almost any other uh, pathogen that I can think of. And, and that means that we have studied it in detail. We have um, come up with these fantastic mRNA vaccines. But I think our thinking about um, infectious disease has shifted. You know, when I was growing up, I remember um, hearing about folks who retired and they would be put on a, a bit of a pedestal when folks would say, you know, so-and-so showed up every day for work, rain or shine, sleet or snow, sick as a dog, it didn't matter, um, <laughs> you know, he, he showed up for work. And I think that that kind of thinking has shifted. Instead of this uh, presenteeism um, where we want people to show up no matter what, I think folks are understanding that you actually don't want to get your coworkers sick. And that taking a day off, if that's the kind of job that allows you to do that, um, is a great thing to do to protect the people around you. So something that gives me hope is, is that kind of shifting in thinking. I feel sick. I'm going to throw on a mask. I feel sick. I'm going to um, call into the meeting instead of showing up in person. I think that suggests that maybe in the future we'll actually see a lower burden of disease overall just because we have a sense of how easily these things transmit. A disease, be it COVID or something else that's transmissible. Okay, presenteeism is my new favorite concept, Dan. Thanks for introducing us to it, and thanks for your time today. A pleasure. Thank you.
Dan Larimore is an assistant professor at CU Boulder. He runs the Larimore Lab, which is focused on the spread and evolution of infectious disease. Still to come, the latest episode of Purplish. A slew of state lawmakers have visions of Washington dancing in their heads. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There are a lot of state lawmakers right now who are running for Congress. I'm Donald Valdez, fifth-generation Coloradan, farmer, rancher, and Democratic state representative. Grand Junction, Colorado, to announce that I am officially entering the race for Congress for the 3rd Congressional District. And now I want to share the news with you that I'm running for Colorado's new 8th Congressional District. The stakes are high because, once again, voters will decide the balance of power in Washington. Let's check in with CPR public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny as they present Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Right now, 7% of Colorado's state lawmakers are running for Congress. That may not sound like the largest percentage you've ever heard, but it has big implications for what happens at the state capitol this year. And it's also going to show us something about politics in 2022. And I thought we could begin with two women. They are from opposite political parties, from opposite chambers at the state capitol, and they both hope to be the first congressperson in Colorado's newest congressional seat, that's CD8. My name is Yadira Caraveo, and I'm currently the House Representative for House District 31. Barbara Kirkmeyer, State Senator, District 23. All right, so why are these the two candidates, Benta, that you wanted to focus on? Well, I, I, I picked them first off because they're vying for this 8th Congressional District, and this race will be Colorado's most competitive seat in 2022. Yeah. The redistricting commission drew it to be a toss-up district. We gained this seat because of our population growth. And the district includes suburbs north of Denver and Adams County and most of Weld County, including Greeley. Yeah, that district's going to be a real slice of Colorado. Senator Kirkmeyer is from Weld County on the north end of the district, and Representative Caraveo is from Adams County in, again, the southern end of the district. And I think in a lot of ways, Kirkmeyer and Caraveo each kind of embody some key aspects that will be seen in this congressional race and, and in the seat as a whole. Uh, Caraveo is a Latina. Her parents immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico. She grew up in Adams County. She's a pediatrician. And, and keep in mind, this legislative seat will be the most heavily Latino in the state. When the congressional 8th district opened up, it really was centered around Adams County, which was where I grew up and where I've been serving patients for the last nine years. Um, and really, the entire district has kind of ties to my family. So it seems like a good way of continuing the work that I've been doing for um, the families that I see in clinic every day. We should mention that these are just two of a whole gaggle of candidates that will be running for this CD8 district, but we are interested in them in particular because they are already state legislators. They have some degree of prominence. But actually, both of these women are pretty new to the state legislature, right? Yeah, that is right. Caraveo is in her second term, so she's had three sessions. 
And for Kirkmeyer, this is her second legislative session. What's interesting, though, is Kirkmeyer is not up for re-election this fall as a state senator. So if she loses the primary or if she wins the primary and loses the general election, she can still go back to her job being a state senator. For Caraveo, House members are up for re-election every two years. Mm. So she won't be running for re-election in the fall and someone else will hold her seat at the state capitol. What about from like a practical standpoint? What does it mean to, to, you know, to be running for one office while you're doing the work of the other? Running for Congress is so expensive and, and a big part of the job, whether people like it or not, is fundraising and it's the candidate making those phone calls. I talked to people who, who'd run before and it could be you really every chance you get starting now and only ramping up. Mm-hmm. And Kirkmeyer said it's not her favorite part of the job, but at the same time, she doesn't mind doing it. I might be in my car. I might be in, uh, you know, my home. I might be at someone else's home. Um, I might be in an office building, you know, but you can do it everywhere, especially now since our we carry our phones around with us in our hands. And when I talked to Representative Caraveo about fundraising, she said, look, everybody's eyes are on this race. And so um, the 8th congressional seat is going to be particularly competitive and one that the nation is really going to focus on because it is um, a toss-up um, and it is brand new. And so each side is going to hope that they can you know, make it blue or red for the next decade or so. And so we really uh, can't anticipate a lot of focus on Colorado with this race. With such high stakes, but while also, again, having to do their work in the state house. How are these candidates kind of managing their day-to-day lives? Are they changing what they're putting in their bills? Are they going to be more cautious or like maybe more ambitious? What does it actually mean to have these federal elections looming over your statehouse work? When I talked to Caraveo, she said she thinks it adds a different nuance to all of her votes hmm. because there's a whole different aspect to how she's voting and a focus on it compared to years past. Uh, and she anticipates that she will have to scale her statehouse work a bit back. Um, For instance, she's already dropped one of the committees she served on, the Health and Insurance Committee. It's a balancing act. And so I am cutting back a little bit on uh, committee work and not running as many big bills um, as I usually do um, in order to balance both. And in fact, Caraveo has been the main sponsor of some bills that took a lot of negotiation and were controversial at the oil and gas measure. And then last session, a bill to restrict youth access to highly potent marijuana. Well, you you can see how those big bills could be an asset or maybe a little bit of a liability for a candidate. But what does it look like on the Republican side where they actually aren't involved usually in the big negotiations around a lot of these legislation? Yeah, it is a little different because that party is in the minority. Although uh, last legislative session, Kirkmeyer did get the majority of her her five bills passed through the Democratic-controlled legislature. But Kirkmeyer said she thinks that could be harder this session Mm. because there's a risk that Democrats may not want to give her any political wins. Not saying that that will happen, but Kirkmeyer thinks it's a possibility. It's not like anybody's jumping to be on a Kirkmeyer bill kind of thing. But I do have some Democrats that I've been able to forge relationships with and work on some bills with. But again... I'm still in the minority, so I don't think anything really changes that much. The funny thing about running as a legislator for another position is that you have a big record. You have a big history. All these votes you've taken and public stances essentially on these different big issues. Um, So just recently we saw a campaign email. It was actually not from Kirkmeyer, but it was attacking Caraveo for voting yes on a bill to reduce drug possession sentences more than a year ago. 
So are they vulnerable to stuff like that as sitting lawmakers? Um, or could they even be like forced into votes this year that the other side wants to use as ammunition for the campaign? I mean, absolutely. It's it's the political season. I I think the state legislature is the perfect place for that because it's one of the last chances to craft a damaging vote record for the other candidate Uh or just even to get a headline. And although Democrats are in the majority, the minority party can do this very easily with amendments that they offer. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, this Democrat voted against this great idea. And, you know, and Democrats will do that, too. So we see that all the time in politics. It just it ramps up even more in a session like this. Like we said, 7%, or if we're being more specific, 7 out of 100 lawmakers running for Congress. Is this just kind of like what they do? You stay in the state legislature long enough and you start getting ideas about Congress? In in some ways, I would say it's a lot of the skills transfer, obviously, because you're dealing with constituents and giving speeches and proposing policy. So it makes sense. Um, So it's not uncommon. If you think of our former U.S. Senator Cory Gardner started in the state legislature. Mm. Um, Lauren Boebert's predecessor, Scott Tipton, who was was ousted by Boebert in a primary, he started in the state legislature. And uh, Diana DeGette, Ed Perlmutter, Doug Lamborn. Okay, so pretty good track record for these state guys running for Congress. But that still leaves the big question, which is why are so many going this year in particular? You know, like we know that they've done it in the past, but it does seem like you've been saying this is a particularly high number of congressional candidates running around the state house. I think what this really speaks to is that this is an incredibly fluid political year. So this is, you know, once every 10 or 20 years uh, level of fluidity in the congressional field. So we we had redistricting, which changes all the political lines in Colorado. Uh It was done by an independent commission. And one of their priorities was to create more competitive seats. And so Uh we're seeing that at the congressional level. And then It's also given Republicans in the state and nationally hopes of making some significant gains. Just this year in general, Republicans have big hopes? Yes. The party in power Mm -hmm. in the midterm election usually loses seats. On top of that, if you look at President Biden's approval ratings, they're very low right now. And so for we've talked about not everyone knows who their state lawmaker is. Not everyone knows who's running for Congress. And so those offices and those races are closely tied oftentimes to what's happening at the presidential level. And Republicans here in Colorado see an opportunity to make gains that, you know, in a way that they haven't seen in years. That doesn't mean it'll it'll all come true for them, but certainly it's shaping up to be a much more competitive midterm election. Yeah. A couple open seats, competitive seats, and a resurgent seeming Republican party. And, And yeah, you're seeing that in Congressional District 7, Congressman Perlmutter is not seeking re-election, and I think everyone would agree part of it is probably due to redistricting. Mm-hmm. His seat's more competitive. Most people thought he would have a good chance of winning, but still it's more competitive. Yep. And if Republicans make the gains they hope and expect to make, mm-hmm. he'd be in the minority party. And then because of redistricting, we have this new seat, the eighth, that yep. we focused on. So that truly is a toss-up district. And it's not every election you have a seat that's truly up in the air. So with all that opportunity, I think we're seeing that affect how Republicans also are, are, are approaching this coming election year. You know, again, continuing with the state lawmakers running for Congress theme, we're seeing two different Republican state lawmakers challenge their own incumbent Congress members. Yeah. And I think especially in Colorado, we're seeing 
kind of soul searching or just a real discussion about from the Republican Party about what the future of the party should should be in Colorado and how they make gains. They don't hold any statewide offices, you know, all, all the major offices, the state legislature. So they're really looking to make some gains. And I think these two primary races kind of exemplify that because you have Representative Williams running to the right of Lamborn. Um, I, I don't think people would typically say Congressman Lamborn is not conservative. So uh-huh. this is someone who's saying, look, you're not conservative enough. Yeah. And then in the the Boebert district, she's has a huge national following. She's controversial. She's in the headlines frequently. Yep. We have state Senator Don Corum. He is running from the middle. He doesn't like the toxic nature of Washington, D.C. And then that's why he's running. You know what's interesting is like, Primary challengers are not unusual, but it is it is a, quite a sight to see them coming from inside the state legislature. These are folks that are more established, that have already won elections and have some degree of, of state standing going up against their own party members. That's exactly right. I mean, Lamborn in particular has had plenty of primary challengers, but it is a little bit different when it's a sitting state lawmaker. Hmm, fascinating. Public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland with an excerpt of Purplish, our politics podcast. Follow Purplish at NPR One, Apple, and everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.